I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part one in our series, Exodus. Some Bible scholars and literary theorists argue that the book of Exodus is, in many ways, the story of the Bible. If that's true, what does that say about God and where your life is headed now? And, uh, you know, as a writer, I like to read about other writers, the ones that I like anyway. Uh, you know, like tips and tricks and process and philosophy and technique. Stephen King never writes an outline, for example, but Betty Snellis never writes without an outline. Apparently, George Orwell vowed to never use a long word when a short word will do. Uh, Cormac McCarthy couldn't be bothered to punctuate anything. Kurt Vonnegut believed that every sentence should reveal some kind of character motivation or advance the plot in some meaningful way. But Otessa Moshfeg argues that evocative style is more valuable than pure narrative. Apparently, Ernest Hemingway said, and I quote, there is nothing to writing. All you do is sit down at a typewriter and bleed. <laughs> Word. Okay, Ernest. And, you know, a lot of writers, they talk about something called the writer's workshop. I don't know if you've ever heard tell of this thing. It's uh, something of a sacred space where writers come together and they share bits and pieces of what they're writing and rewriting, and they offer one another feedback and advice. And it's kind of easy to romanticize these stories about best-selling authors who, not so long ago, were once poor and unknown, and they crowded around some crappy kitchen table with other poor, unknown writers offering themselves up to their criticism. At some point, a writer who never made it sneered at a, a, what would become a best-selling author, uh, uh, writing another novel that would go on to become a best-selling novel, and they probably said to them, ah, it's not so good. But what did they know? In these stories about writers' workshops, they huddle in tiny apartments in New York City or on balconies in Los Angeles, and they drink wine and smoke cigarettes and say things like, but how do you resolve this character? And, or they say things like, careful, you're drifting toward deus ex machina territory. Now, deus ex machina is this kind of reviled plot device by which a conflict, is a meaningful conflict, is suddenly resolved in a heartbeat, in the most unlikely of ways. So, you know, like little hobbits are about to die on a mountain, but then look, a big eagle flies in, and that's that. Or, you know, to be fair to me, that was to make uh, Levi and Cam mad, but this, you know, you're surrounded by velociraptors, but oh wait, a T-Rex snuck inside. No one noticed. Or, you know, suddenly the basilisk is, is surely going to devour young Harry, but nope, a magic bird appears from nowhere to drop a magic hat out of which materializes a magic sword. Isn't that convenient? Shouldn't it have done that much earlier? The writer's workshop, they say, will call you on that stuff. But I have never lived in a crummy New York apartment. I've never dinnered with other struggling up-and-coming authors on a California terrace. I've never drank wine at all, actually, never smoked any cigarettes, and I've never belonged to a proper writer's workshop. One of the great joys of writing, for me anyway, is in the uh, unilateral creative control, or it was, you, you have to compromise sometimes. After a few years and a few books, I started sharing my early manuscripts with a small group of friends. Some have similar tastes, a couple who would probably never read books like mine if I didn't ask them to do it, and I ask, after they've read it, well, what did you think? And they say things like, I didn't get this part or I hated this character, or did you have to kill the dog? 
And then I write it all down, all the feedback. Some suggestions, they become changes, others don't. When I had finished a, you know, 72,000 plus word manuscript all about Christian deconstruction, Cam was just talking about it, naturally, I asked our very own Cameron Silsby if he would take a look. This guy is a Christian, I figure. At least it seems like it. He, <laughs> he knows about deconstruction. He knows about the Bible and people. He's read a couple of other books that I've written and lots of books by people much smarter than me. So let's see what he thinks. And one morning after he had very graciously read the whole thing, we sat together in his office and I opened my laptop, created a new document, and I started a bullet list. Okay, I said, go. And he tells me, you always write about pain. Pain is the thread. It's the through line in your fiction and your nonfiction. Lots of pain. It seems like there's never any redemption without pain. And huh, I thought, I hadn't realized. And I, I wondered to myself, am I telling the same story in a theology book about God and the Bible as I am in a story I made up in a novel? Is it a story about pain? Some writers, some readers, critics, and analysts of the literary world believe that we tend to tell the same stories over and over again, at least in one way or another. Northrop Fry was a literary theorist who became convinced that all Western literature has been influenced in ways big or small, knowingly or unknowingly, by the Bible. In fact, he called the Old and New Testament the great code of art. Fry was fascinated by something called typology, which is a field of study that tracks recurring symbols and motifs throughout the Bible's epic meta-narrative. And he believed that to understand the Bible story, to, to get it, it was absolutely necessary to understand, of all things in this massive ancient tome, the book that we call Exodus. Creation, bondage, liberation, renewal, and redemption. These are the great movements of Exodus, and they are the great movements of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. Creation, bondage, liberation, redemption, and renewal. Exodus is a story about a terrible human predicament of enslavement to a cruel and evil oppressor, but then God enacts a rescue mission. He sends a deliverer who happens to be a firstborn son who escapes genocide as an infant, walks in the wilderness, confronts, and then passes judgment on evil, on the lesser gods, and he sets his people free from slavery to enact a new people and a new way of life. In the story, the blood of a sacrificial lamb sends death away and evil collapses in on itself as God ushers even a rebellious, wayward people into undeserved freedom. The Bible itself concentrated into a single story, the story. But it probably doesn't seem that way to us, at least not all the time. Watch this. Look again at the opening verse that Josiah read just a few minutes ago in the very first chapter of Exodus. If you're not already there, go ahead and open your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, so it's easy to find. In the very first chapter, the very first verse, we read, These are the names of the sons of Israel, Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, so a bunch of names. And then verse 5, The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all, Joseph was already in Egypt. Now, here's a little backstory. For the last few weeks, I have been watching an animated prequel to the movie Gremlins with my kids. Now, ordinarily, I don't really watch uh, TV shows personally, 
But, you know, they wanted to see this. And, you know, the, the 1984 original is probably number two on my list of all-time favorite films. So I was like, yeah, I'll watch this with you guys. And so we sat down. We watched uh, the... We, we have been watching as a fan... Well, not so much Abby, but me and the kids have been watching the original film and the sequel for years and years and years now on a loop. Of course, you can only watch the original at Christmas time, so we try to ring out at least a handful of viewings during you know, November and December. So then we learned that HBO had ordered an animated prequel series, and we figured, sure, why not? We'll give that a shot. Now, the cartoon is set in 1920s Shanghai, but like most nostalgia-fueled retreads, it's obviously infused with all manner of references and homages to the original films, Again, my wife, Abby, is not the biggest Gremlins fan. She's in the room the other day while we're watching it, and she's busying herself with other things, and we're catching the latest episode. Every now and then, after some line of dialogue or some visual cue, the kids would smile, and they'd whirl around and shout, hey, Dad, did you see that? And we would high-five, or we'd say, awesome, you know, to each other. And Abby would look up from her work and say, what, what is it? seeing nothing on the screen worth high-fiving. And the kids would say, oh, that, that thing they just said, that was from the first movie. Or they'd say, that's the same thing that happened in Gremlins 2. To someone not following the entire story closely, nothing of real consequence is unfolding. But for those who know the story really well, there's a deep sense of, ah, I see what you did there. I recognize that reference. Genesis the first book in the Hebrew Scriptures, the book that immediately precedes Exodus, ends with Joseph, joined by his father and brothers in Egypt. These are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob and his descendants who went to Egypt. That is how Genesis begins to wrap itself up. We read, with the two sons who had been born to Joseph in Egypt, the members of Jacob's family went, which, or which went to Egypt, were 70 in all. Then, right into Exodus 1, the descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Maybe one scene closes, yes, and another scene opens, sure, but this is not one story concluding all together to make room for a new one. This is the same story still going, always going, really. Look at it this way. When we hear Genesis, many of our minds understandably flicker on in the beginning. We think of Adam and Eve, we think of the snake, the whole thing. But Adam in ancient Hebrew is more than the specific name or the proper name of one dude. It's actually a word that means person or human being. And that we get. Genesis, the whole tree thing, the snake, the curse, that's meant to be more than a strange story about these specific characters and that's it. We understand, at least we've probably garnered somewhere along the way of you know, the whole church and Bible thing, that that's also meant to be our story. And that story, our story, just carries right over as Genesis comes to an end and Exodus begins. So yeah, there's the whole narrative continuity thing, but that's not all there is to it. In fact, if you read Exodus in light of Genesis, you'll start to sound like my kids watching that Gremlins cartoon. The allusions, the references, the Easter eggs are all over the place. Now, in pop culture, an Easter egg is a sort of semi-coded or hidden statement, or it can be a veiled reference to an adjacent work or related thing, like the way Sid's carpet in Toy Story matches the iconic carpet in the Overlook Hotel from The Shining. 
or the way that the same pattern is hidden on a tissue box in Toy Story 3, as well as the intercom from the Overlook Hotel, as are references to the Overlook's haunted room 237 on security cameras in the same Toy Story movie and license plates. And honestly, I could go on and on and on. So many Pixar references to The Shining. My God, seriously, look them up. I got bored just trying to pack them all into this teaching. But they go beyond just that, hiding a visual cue to another movie. Martin Scorsese hit a letter X in every scene prior to a death in The Departed. David Fincher hit a Starbucks logo, wrapper, or cup in every shot of his film Fight Club. And believe it or not, yours truly hit a line from Fight Club in every single one of my sermons for the first three years of our church. Yeah, that's right. Very few people knew this, but those that did would tell me that they would chuckle when they heard it. They, oh, there it is. There's the line. Reading Exodus in light of Genesis, with Genesis in mind, you'll see what I mean. Here's just one example right in the very beginning. We could go on and on like the whole Toy Story and the Shining thing, but we won't tonight. Look at verse 6 again. Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but verse 7, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Just like God had asked in Genesis, God blessed them and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. The author of Exodus sets the stage for a people and a predicament, just like in Genesis, a familiar conflict still in want of a resolution. Like in Genesis, the stage is set and then out of nowhere, the antagonist suddenly appears. You know how that story goes. You're reading about Adam and Eve, the garden, the whole thing, and then you suddenly get, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. In Exodus, the same thing happens. The stage is set. The antagonist suddenly appears. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. It's a story, yes, but it's also the story. The Hebrew Bible, or what we now call the Old Testament, is 39 scrolls grouped into four major categories. You've got the law, or what we call the Torah. You've got kings, poetry, prophets. It's easy to think of the law as the well-known Ten Commandments and the, you know, harder to memorize 613 commandments that follow right after that. But these are actually more than just moral lists. They're more than just some kind of ancient rule book. They actually belong to the story. N.T. Wright wrote that there are two liberation journeys in Exodus. The first is to get Israel out of slavery, and the second is to get the slavery out of Israel. God brings Israel out of bondage, but years of slavery and their lingering effects across generations don't simply dissolve by relocating people. You need an entirely new way of life and understanding the world itself. The rules, in the specific sense, aren't the point. Becoming a new and free people is the point. The law is one of the ways Israel is intended to get there. So ask parents who adopt children out of terrible environments or who care for foster children who were previously in terrible environments why they go through so much trouble to create certain rhythms and structural and why that's so crucial to a child's healing process. For want of order or just discipline only, or is it to teach a new way of under, understanding themselves and the world? If you ask someone adapting to life outside of prison, why they're working so hard with a parole officer and seeing a counselor and applying for jobs, I doubt that they will say rules for rules' sake. 
These are means by which the person once imprisoned finds their way through life on the other side of the bars. And if that person had someone who refused to give up on them while they were incarcerated, who had stood with them for years, who had visited them in jail, who had helped pay for lawyers, who had worked to exonerate them, to get them out, then when that prisoner was finally released and found their faithful friend waiting for them in the parking lot, smiling, ready to take them home. Maybe that prisoner, intimidated, sure, by the long, arduous journey before them to rehabilitate and be introduced as a healthy, functioning member of society, maybe as they stumbled into that new alien world of freedom, maybe they would take comfort in the promise of their friend. I've been with you this long. I'm not going anywhere with you. Wasn't I with you on the phone, on the other side of the glass? Didn't I come through for you when you needed me? Wasn't I waiting when you crossed the threshold of freedom? I was there then. I'll be here now. When that adopted child or that foster child grows up and sets out into the world, won't their parents say the same thing? I was there then. I will be here now. Throughout the scriptures, in both the Old and New Testaments, dozens and dozens of times, the character of God is summarized in the stark, simple reminder that he is the one who brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt, the story of Exodus. God delivering Israel in Exodus becomes one of the great linchpins of his overall trustworthiness. How do we know that God will come through for us? Because he did it before. He'll do it again. And it's not just a revelation of what makes God unique in all the universe. Knowing this thing about God changes things for us, and it changes us over time. When my dad died unexpectedly nine years ago now, we had to stop everything, fly across the country for a funeral everyone wished wasn't happening in the first place. It was a really bad time for me. I had a four-month-old baby, barely enough money for a plane ticket. I scrambled to get the trip together, made it down to Georgia, and like anyone who's ever had someone they love die, knows well enough, you have to sit around and exchange all these exhausting pleasantries with well-meaning sympathizers. But then, as I'm there shaking hands in a funeral home, I look up and my oldest friend, his name's Ivory, walks through the doors. And I was shocked to see him because, like me, I knew that, one, he no longer lived in Georgia, and like me, he probably had no money at all. I had not asked him to show up. I don't think I talked to him between, you know, those few days when my dad died and I got down to Georgia other than he left me a voicemail. No one asked him to be there. He heard the news, immediately scraped together what money he had on a day's notice, called into work, and got on a plane. And then right behind him came my second oldest friend, uh, our very own Mike Jensen. And now my brother Patrick and I are reunited with these old friends And this stupid thing that had happened became one of the more meaningful gestures of friendship in my life. And I asked myself across the years after then, how do I know that they're my friends, really my friends? Because they're the ones who showed up. And in the photo, this day where everyone had been like crying and miserable, uh, there's four friends who look really happy. (laughs) We're having a nice time. I don't remember why Ivory decided to pose hard. I think that... (laughs) It was one of those things where he's like, we should make a face, but then no one did it because we were laughing at his idea to make a face. So that's the picture we're left with. And now there were other friends with whom I'd been close, who knew my dad really well, who were minutes away and didn't show up. And I wasn't embittered by their absence at all. I'm sure some of them had good reasons, but it set the friends who came apart. What makes them different? They were there. 
Then a couple of years later, a friend of mine went through the same thing when his dad died unexpectedly. Kind of wide, loose, no-pressure invitation was issued by his wife to friends and co-workers to have everyone join them at the funeral if they were so inclined. We weren't incredibly close, uh, me and this guy, so for a moment I thought, you know, eh, he doesn't need me there, and who wants to go to funerals anyway, especially when they don't know the person who died? But then I thought of Ivory, and I thought of Mike. So I, you know, inconvenienced myself in a very minor way, took off work, made my way down to the service, and afterwards, you know, I went to go see him for a second. I didn't want to bother him with the pleasantries and all that kind of stuff, but just to say, hey, and that I was there, and I hope he was doing well. And when he saw me, this buddy of mine, he was weeping. He's this tall, big, strong dude, and he grabbed me with both arms and squeezed me, and he said, thank you for being here for me. And I knew what he meant by that. In the grand scheme of things, I was obviously a very small fixture of this profound moment for him, but there was another friend there, and that means something. The story, my story, of friends who showed up and changed me became part of my story that changed someone else. Stories have the power to do that. God is an artist before he is a historian. Genesis does not open with, in the beginning, God documented the events. It opens beautifully with, in the beginning, God created. And yet, so many of us come to the book in your hands tonight as if it is a necessary but problematic artifact of history to be learned and resolved. And yeah, the Bible documents history, but more than that, it tells a story that changes things, changes us, like any great work of art does. Recently, director James Gunn was asked if he thinks it's fair to describe himself as an auteur. Now, in auteur theory, the director of a film has such distinctive and personal creative control over a movie that they are considered the author of the film in the same way that a novelist is the author of the book, the unilateral voice of its creation. But James Gunn objected to the term. He admitted that a film necessitates the unique creative contributions of so many artisans across so many fields that one person alone, no matter the singularity of their vision, can hardly be held entirely responsible for any given film. What I once loved about writing, the, the solitary freedom of it, the unilateral vision, God, the greatest artist, the first artist, deliberately bypasses because he wanted company. The Bible is an incredible hybrid of divine masterwork and ancient cobbled scrapbook. God is the auteur. He is the voice with all the say, the director with final cut, but he deliberately, willingly enlists hundreds of hands and minds in putting pen to papyrus and still manages to tell the greatest story ever told. Even the way God gets the story done on paper is a statement about his character and his love and about us. It's a story about a human predicament, bondage, freedom, good and evil, unrequited love, a promise that the promise maker refuses to break. How can we know that God will keep his promises to us? He already did. It's in the story. It's our story, a story as old as one that we've heard a thousand times before. Moses, Egypt, the sea split in half, 
the story of a deliverer, a firstborn son who escapes genocide as an infant, walks in the wilderness, confronts and passes judgment on evil, on the lesser gods, and sets his people free from slavery to enact a new people and a new way of life. Sometimes I think of myself as like a writer who stumbled upon several writing-adjacent gigs. Something that occurred to me while I was away on sabbatical was that as I, t- I spent time reflecting on my vocation and season of life and our church, Sunday wasn't coming. It was the first time in some nine years of full-time pastoring that for not one or two weeks, but four weeks, Sunday wasn't swallowing everything up. A friend and mentor of mine prior to Van City's first gathering warned me, the Sunday gathering, this is a direct quote, the Sunday gathering is a black hole dragging everything into its gravitational pull, time, resources, energy, just everything. And Abby and I found ourselves one Sunday evening just a couple weeks ago realizing that aside from, you know, the one or two Sundays every year where we're out of the state on vacation, or once when someone was in the hospital giving birth. We have never not been at church on a Sunday. Even if I wasn't at this church, it was because I was at another church, and that's neither like a brag or a complaint. It is honestly an honor and a privilege to belong to the church, to be here, and I want to be here. I wanted to be here before my job asked it of me. I mean that very sincerely, but I do work here. And when I go to teach at another church, I'm working there for an evening. So Sunday has always been coming with all its rhythmic beauty and necessary demands. And because of both, it can become easy to do things because that's just what we do as a church. It's sort of circular logic. Why order the gathering a particular way? Because that's how we order the gathering. What should we do this summer? A book of the Bible. Why? Because we teach books of the Bible at church. But with the time to do it, I've been thinking these last few weeks about that question, why? I actually enjoy learning about the Bible for the sake of it, you know, as a Christian or as a reader, as an artist. I find it all very fascinating. I know some of you guys feel the same way. But is this a seminary class? Is that what we're doing? Is this a book club? Is that the extent of the purpose of our community? What good is information without transformation? And don't get me wrong, our our team of leaders does work very hard to approach everything we do with as thoughtful an approach as possible, led by the Spirit of God as best as we know how, but Sunday is always coming. The train is always moving. For the last few weeks, I've just been thinking about the story, our story, a story that changes people. We knew that we were going to teach through the book of Exodus. It's something that we've been preparing together with our friends at Bridgetown Church, and I sat in teaching meetings with their team and came back and sat with our team. And, but in this time away, I was like, why? Why Exodus? Why this story? My uh, group of close friends often jokes that my wife, Abby, is the consummate casual moviegoer. We use it as an insult against her. Because she's not a self-proclaimed cinephile. Actually, she tries to say she is sometimes, but it doesn't hold up in court. She, she doesn't exhaust herself with the minutia of film. But she, you know, she enjoys movies. In fact, her quote that we use all the time is, I like the movies I like. That's what she says. And because, oh, wow, wow, she's got a team with her. <laughs> and because she is the resident casual moviegoer in a social circle of movie nerds, we were all shocked to hear her say that Terrence Malick's 2011 film, The Tree of Life, 
had, and I quote, changed her life. She doesn't usually talk that way about movies. Doesn't usually stay awake for the whole thing. <laughs> like, like it was just such an insulting thing to say. Some of you do that too. Jeez, she's, she's fine. But she doesn't usually talk that way about movies, especially wildly divisive movies like The Tree of Life. But she did. She said it changed her life. And not just in the sense that, you know, before she'd seen it, hadn't seen it, and then afterwards she had seen it, so that was different. But in the sense that it invited her to reconsider her outlook on the world. Stories can do that. Really, there's only one story, our story. We know it probably in the sense that we're familiar with the beats and where it goes and even how it ends. But for the next few weeks across the often awkward timeline of summer in church when attendance wanes and attention wanders, I am asking you and myself to come and relearn a story thousands of years old, but in progress even now. Exodus is a story about a God who hears the cries of the oppressed, sees the tears of the suffering, who comes to break the chains of slavery, be they institutions and empires or sin and evil or all of the above. And if this is your story too, then what does that mean? So to end... I want to invite you into a time of meditation and listening before the Spirit of God, during which you will ask the Spirit to fill in the blank state, the blank of a statement whose ending is unique to you, unique to your place in the story. If God is the one who hears the cries of the oppressed and sees the tears of the suffering, if God is the one who rescues you from slavery and brings you out of bondage and into freedom, then he will what? Where is your part of the story going in this season of your life, in this stage of your discipleship to Jesus? On what are you waiting? If that's who God is, the God who brings us out of darkness and into light, and if that God is telling the same story of a redeemer and redemption, and we are in it, how is that story repeating itself now? Where's it going? Ultimately, yes, on a day somewhere on the horizon of time to the renewal of all things when Jesus brings redemption fully realized to every physical and spiritual dimension of creation, yes, but also tonight and tomorrow and in the weeks ahead in your life, in the life of your friends, your family, your community, your church. If Jesus rescued you from slavery and brought you out of bondage, then he will, what? Provide, restore, heal you, reconcile this dark season, bring something good out of something awful, give you some much-needed peace or purpose or direction, focus for the first time in a long time. What? Circumstance is the great lampshade of your own personal history. Immediate circumstance kind of narrows the beam of truth in one direction, and it dampens an otherwise luminous cone of light. It creates shadows and darkness, with much of our story obscured by the shadows of the way things are right now. It's easy to forget what has been and what will be. I've loved this job, honestly, these seven years and counting of our church. Like any gig, of course, there's rough patches. I'm well aware of the role this church, you guys, have played in my spiritual formation, in my life, and in the lives of my family. 
while we're away, which is a luxury in and of itself. Most people don't get to take sabbaticals. I was aware of that as well. One thing that my kids ask literally every week was, good grief, when do we get to go back to our church? <laughs> and I opened the door to my office for the first time in a month this last Monday. Um, it was a nice little gift basket on the day that my coworkers left for me. There were dozens of emails. Some of them were sort of stressful. After four weeks with no conflict, I had an argument with my wife about working out my schedule and with kids' orthodontist appointments, and I got impatient, and I was rude for the first time in a long time, or what felt like a long time anyway. And I, I sat in front of my laptop all week, and I stood up, and I did laps around my office and around this building, awkwardly reaching for the words to this sermon and how to say them and why Exodus and what does this story mean? Little things, tiny frustrations or bummers, minor inconveniences of a couple of days that somehow cast a shadow over what God had been saying over the last few weeks of time. And it was easy to overlook all that in light of what was happening right now. But there are days that you guys know this well enough. There are days when the shadows are even longer and when they take on ominous shapes and circumstance obscures the beginning and end of the story until the, all that remains is the immediacy of the present moment and the present moment is addiction or depression or aimlessness or doubt or stress, anxiety, unfulfillment, pain. Always writing about pain. But beyond the shadow echoes what was true then, is true now, and will be true tomorrow morning, that He is the God that brings you out of slavery and into freedom. So He will what? Let's ask God's Spirit to come and speak and reveal to us the end of that sentence. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.